Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. I love this psalm. It is one of my favorites because it is so easy in a sense. This is kind of like what you might call a softball psalm in that there are so many very, very clear references in the New Testament to Psalm 45, uh, in some places exact quotations, other places allusions to or references or perhaps a phrase or a word. And this really is a great psalm for you to begin to understand how it is that the Psalms speak of Christ. When Jesus is uh, post-resurrection, walking with two disciples from uh uh, from Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus, uh, they are on their way leaving Jerusalem, and these two disciples have completely lost all hope. This is in Luke 22 or 24, I think, um, 24. And, and Jesus is encountering these two disciples, and they tell Jesus, they don't recognize that it's Jesus at first. They tell him of what's just taken place in the city of Jerusalem, how Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah they had supposed, uh, died and was, you know, he was crucified and, and has died. And they say this very important phrase. They say, but we had hoped that he was the Messiah. And Jesus then at this point reveals himself and he tells them that they were fool, fools, uh, you know, 
if you think that Jesus is always just kind of a marshmallow, kind, uh, wimpy guy, he calls them foolish, um, and then he says that they were slow of heart and that they were not able to understand nor believe. And so at a very deep level, our ability to see Christ in the Old Testament is dependent on our ability to understand, but also our ability to believe. If we are not willing to believe, we're actually prevented from understanding. Um, and so they, they go together, and that's why we understand that the Spirit must move on us when we are reading the Scriptures in order to see and savor Jesus Christ. So this passage uh, is an especially helpful way to begin to see what you might call a 10,000-foot view of the redemptive plan of Jesus. Uh, he, he is coming to form for himself a bride, and this is poetry about that event. And so we see this person who is a warrior, and at the same time, he's a bridegroom. I want to encourage you uh, young men, especially those who are coming to uh, chop down trees on Saturday, that it is not manly for you to be calloused and for you to be this uh, macho, you know, you might think of um, Hulk Hogan, you know, ripping shirts and uh, pumping iron and, and completely devoid of any sensitivity or tenderness. Jesus Christ is the most manly man who has ever lived on this earth, and he was in, intensely tender. And this poem, if you are to understand it, requires you to understand that men can be warriors as well as husbands, warriors or victors as well as uh, gentle and kind-hearted. And this is what we see in this psalm concerning Jesus. It's talking about a warrior, but it's also using the language of bridal communion, that is, uh, the event by which Christ wins for himself a bride that is the church, and then woos her and gives her the joy that he has. And so uh, it's important to understand that as we begin to look at these passages. We're neither minimizing the warrior, nor are we ignoring the bridegroom. And so understanding them both as aspects and necessary aspects of who Jesus Christ is, we see a more complete, a more healthy picture of who our Savior is. Douglas Wilson is a pastor out in a church called Moscow, Idaho, and he has a great small catechism that he teaches his children as they're growing up, and children and grandchildren as they're growing up around the dinner table. And the catechism is this, what is the message of the whole Bible? And the answer that the children say is, slay the dragon, get the girl. <laughs> and I love that. Because that is what the scripture is about. At the beginning in Genesis 3, we see a serpent who comes in and deceives Eve, and then through that topples Adam as well. And this serpent is that great old dragon, which we see reemerge in Revelation. Satan has been at war with this woman, and Christ is the one who slays the dragon and receives for himself a bride. And so this is the this is the poetic, or if you wish to, to say, um, imagery, the, the symbolism of the scriptures. This is the great narrative arc. Many of us are so used to narrative arcs in stories like Lord of the Rings, uh, or Star Wars, um, or Star Trek, if you're into that. Um, <laughs> we always pray for people after church. Um, <laughs> No, I love, I love Star I've never been able to get into Star Trek. The point is, not to, to be silly, but the point is that you are very familiar with narrative arcs. And what, what do I mean by narrative arcs? I mean, there is a dilemma, and there is a journey. 
or a movement in the story. There's progression, there's development, there's either character development or multiple characters at, you know, at war with each other. And then there's a great conflict, and after the conflict there is a resolution. This is the prototype for all stories you've ever heard. Before any of those stories were penned or imagined by various authors and, uh, you know, uh, writers of fiction, great, great novelists, those people did not originate the idea of story. Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit have for all time wished to glorify themselves by demonstrating their righteousness and mercy and justice in a story, and this is that story. This is a 10,000-foot view of that story. So I want to look at five aspects of the story. But before we look at those five aspects, it is manifestly important that you see God's grand redemptive plan in all of the scriptures. And unless you take the time to consider it, it's very hard to pick up from just one chapter here or there. We're invited to take part in the very same joy that this warrior bridegroom has as he executes his judgments. And this shows up at the end of the chapter, as we'll see in a few minutes. But it's not enough that you understand intellectually, it must become something that you behold through the eyes of faith. And so these five elements are the rightness of worship. Um, Earlier at the beginning of our songs today, um, the song that we sung at the beginning um, actually has these first few lines of the psalm in that song, and it does so intentionally because it is also, that song, although it's not exactly the same as Psalm 45, is also a grand picture of Jesus Christ wooing the bride. And here we see the rightness in the psalmist's view, in the psalmist's estimation, the rightness of worship. That is, it's pleasing for us as humans to consider these grand and lofty and noble ideas, these noble thoughts about Jesus Christ. It's not something to be left to the academics. Even though you may not consider yourself a great student of scripture, it's not something that's too hard for you to understand. It's not something that's inaccessible to you, especially when you ask for God's help in understanding these things. After that, we're going to look at Christ in verse 3 as he begins to enter the scene as the mighty warrior who is both executing judgments on his enemies and extending mercy to those who he desires to extend mercy to. Jesus Christ rides out and slays his enemies, and we're going to see how that's a twofold system. That is, Jesus Christ either defeats his enemies through judgment or makes them into his friends. And this is extremely important for us to understand. If you do not get this right, you will project into the future that when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to come back with a military army and slay all the men of the earth. That is not what this is intending to convey. And when I say that Jesus Christ is a warrior bridegroom, I'm talking about him utilizing the sword as the word of God, not anything other than that. I do not believe that we should take up arms. And in fact, when Christ was about to be killed, he said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise I would be fighting. If he didn't fight on the earth when he was here, why do you think that he's going to fight when he comes back? The gospel conquers its enemies in a different manner altogether. So, moving from that, we're going to look at the glorification of Christ. This is a scene into the heavens after Christ ascends uh, into the heavens and is conferred on upon the Holy Spirit, uh, or the Holy Spirit is conferred upon him. He's baptized in the Spirit as a forerunner for us. And then from there, that 
joy that he receives becomes our joy. And that joy is manifestly evident in what we're going to do at the, the apex of every worship service at this church is feast with Christ in the Eucharist or communion. So that's where this is all going. This is all going to a marriage supper of the Lamb, which is being entered into and is still coming. So with all that in mind, if you do have a Bible, I would recommend grabbing it and just turning to to Psalm 45. Um, If you don't have one, the the verses will be up on the screen, but it may help you to uh, have one in front of you. The psalmist begins this poem with a heart that is literally overflowing with joy in this vision. The New Testament says that in former times, the Spirit moved upon writers of Scripture, and they were seeking within them when it was that the Messiah would come about. David is the author of many of the Psalms, but not necessarily this one. We don't know. And so I'm going to refer to this writer as the psalmist, or that is the person who's writing this psalm. The psalmist here His heart is literally overflowing with this theme. He's been so captivated by the glory and the beauty of what God is showing him that it's coming out from his heart. And it's also at the same time coming out of his pen. This is a song that is written down. The psalmist sees by the Spirit the plan of God to reveal Jesus Christ as this warrior, and he's overcome. He's undone with the beauty of what's going on here. He Again, using our funny analogy like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, people become consumed with the stories that fill their heart. And so here, this psalmist is expelling uh, joy in the form of worship. He says in verse 1, My heart overflows, going down a little bit, my tongue is like the pen of a ready writer. This is a song that is meant to be sung and understood. The poetry is beautiful on the level of theme and and imagery, but it's also beautiful in that it's sung, it's expressed. And so worship that is both in intellectually rich, full of imagery, full of beauty, and also pleasing and accords with the truth of the gospel is the aim of what this psalmist is getting at. His heart overflows, his tongue is like the pen of a ready writer, and that exactly mirrors in verse 2. The heart of the psalmist is filled with this pleasing theme, and his tongue is like the pen of a writer. That is, the joyous theme is coming out of the mouth of the psalmist. And then verse 2, it describes this warrior bridegroom who begins to enter the scene as having grace upon his lips. What the psalmist is intending to say is this is a, this isn't a message that he invented. It's not fiction. It came from somewhere, and we see it because he identifies joy as the central theme of this warrior bridegroom narrative, this warrior bridegroom poem. And so this joy which fills the psalmist's heart comes from the fact that there is a grace upon the lips of this one who is speaking. And the one who is speaking is Jesus Christ, and the grace upon his lips is nothing other than the promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ is speaking forth a word which is gracious, and that word is the sword that he wields, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Christ is seen as the most handsome, and I just want to explain that this is not stating that Jesus Christ 
would be on the cover of a magazine. This is not saying that Jesus Christ is beautiful to the eyes of the flesh. In fact, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 concerning the great uh, Yahweh's servant, who we understand to be the Messiah, that his appearance was nothing that we should have considered it. And in fact, through his sufferings was marred beyond any uh, recognition. As in Isaiah sees the sufferings of Christ and identifies the fact that Jesus was so so destroyed in his physical frame through the sufferings that he didn't look human any longer. That's how far it, it went for him in his sufferings. So here the psalmist is not saying that Jesus is attractive. This is not, I'm, you know, the bride of Christ and I'm going on dates with Jesus, my bridegroom. That's not the sort of imagery that is used. And that's never used in the scripture. Although passages, whole books, such as Song of Solomon, uh, they use this imagery between Christ and the bride. It's never sexualized. And be very careful as you begin to understand these things. You're not going on dates with Jesus. Jesus is not your boyfriend. When you, when you consider, as a, as a single person, if you're not planning on getting married, when you consider the, the wonderful gift of chastity and celibacy, uh, you are not thinking about being married to Jesus in a way that married people are not married to Jesus. So just getting that out there, and this is especially encouraging for men who, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're buying, uh, you're giving me a little bit of faith here, but once we start talking about how handsome Jesus is, then it might be tricky for you. So you, the, the point is that he's fair. And this is where I like the new King James, or the King James Version. It says that he is the fairest or the most excellent or the most supreme. It's not simply a physical beauty. It is also quality of character and beauty of person, beauty that is not skin deep. In the great Irish hymn, which dates as early as the 6th century, Be Thou My Vision, a hymn that we've only sung once or twice here, but a great hymn nonetheless, it says, Thou my best thought by day or by night. This psalmist is filled with this noble theme this wonderful and beautiful theme, and it considers Jesus Christ as supreme and excellent and to be desired, not just simply physically handsome. And so we understand that Christ is the reason why we have been given hearts and minds. The reason that you have a mind and a heart and a spirit is that you would behold both with eyes of faith and understanding, and that understanding conferring to the heart, that Jesus Christ is the most supreme and excellent person who ever is or was or will be. And so this psalm shows us just two simple aspects of his beauty. The meditation that this psalmist has overflows into worship. That is the goal of all of your seeking of the Lord in your Bible reading, in your prayer times, in your worship times, in your times of service, you should be beholding Jesus Christ, and that should overflow into worship. We see this in Romans 11, where Paul is writing, and he's discussing the grand plan of God to save the church, and he then at this point overflows with worship. And he he's writing this discourse of theology, and then all of a sudden, there's a little bracket. Whenever you see your Bible, when the text moves in from the side, it means there's a poem or a song. And Paul literally explodes into worship, saying, oh, the heights and the depths and the riches of his ways. And so this is the point of theological work. This is the point of reading your Bible, is that the worship, or that worship would overflow from that.
If you're finding that you do not like worshiping God, the reason is, is because you have no conception of his greatness. And that conception will necessarily bring forth praise. And so it's God's great gift to help us understand who he is, and then for that understanding to become part of our spiritual walk, our spiritual life. So the psalmist begins to describe Jesus as this writer, and he entreats him at this point. Uh, When the psalmist describes Christ, he goes forth in victory, and he is entreated to do so. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh. Uh, Now, again, this mentioning of the thigh is not anything sexualized. It's just simply where you keep a sword, if you didn't know that. Um, swords are at their hips, at the hip. And the reason it's at the hip is it's because it's very close and ready to be drawn. It's not a sword in a backpack. It's not a sword somewhere in the chariot. It's a sword on the hip because Christ is ready to slay his enemies. And we'll see exactly in just a min- minute what I mean by that. Verse 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Whenever you see something in your Bible that reminds you of something in our culture, you should pause and think about it for a second. When I read this phrase that says, for the cause of truth, righteousness, and meekness, in my mind, I hear Captain America theme. For the cause of truth and the American way, right? Captain America is a rival hero for our warrior bridegroom. There is something that is greater about this warrior bridegroom than the best hero story that you've ever heard. He's not just fighting an evil force. He's also bringing forth a bride and also sustaining that bride with joy. I've seen a lot of hero movies, and they never really get to very happy places. They just defeat the enemy, and then the end of the movie comes. And, you know, you try to go back next year and spend a dollar extra. You know, the prices always seem to increase at the theaters. And and the stories never really get better. I've seen probably half of the modern hero movies, and they're pretty much always the same. They never lead to a bride being glorified here, like we have in this story. So anyway, never mind. Um, The the point is that this, this warrior is going forth in victory, and he's going to slay his enemies. And then in verse five, it says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This is talking about as the rider goes forth, he is not stopped by anyone. Christ overcomes his enemies in one of two ways. This is what I was referring to earlier, either by judgment for those who persist in rebellion or by turning his enemies into his friends. That is what I mean when I describe the grace which is poured on his lips and also that same grace and joy filling the psalmist's heart. And then the psalmist then from that point is encouraging this warrior bride, entreating this warrior bride to ride on. And this warrior bride, who is Jesus Christ, slays his enemies either through judging the rebellious or converting them into friends. And he does this by grace. Christ himself described the kingdom that he was bringing in the book of Matthew in chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Modern humanist religion states that religion's aim and goal is the unification of men, of mankind. That if we all could just somehow get all of our resources met and all of our wants and desires quelled, 
if we could just adopt some sort of quasi-Buddhism and be detached from material desires and not have any sort of land or political conflict, then we would be at harmony, then we would begin to teach all the religions that they're actually all one, and, and we'd all be fine, right? This is the modern idea of uh, ecumenicism outside of Christianity. That is, you know, the Christians should dialogue with the Jews, who should dialogue with the Muslims and the Buddhists and Hindus. If we all just got together and all dropped our pride, then we would see that we're all one and it would be fine. But brothers and sisters, Christ has nothing to do with that. Jesus Christ has nothing to do with that. Why? Because those religions are all lies. They're all lies. Jesus, when he himself was on this earth, he declared that I came to bring a sword. After this, immediately after this, Jesus says, from now on, the enemies of a man will be those of his own household. The reason why Jesus Christ has to conquer with a sword which divides left from right righteousness from unrighteousness, and I'm not talking about political affiliations, although I think they're both wrong, but that's neither here nor there. Um, every, every, every political leader is promising something, and to some degree or another, they're either promising something good or bad. And the problem with sin is, it's, it's not like we could all get together and just say, we're righteous and those people are unrighteous. The point is that sin runs through the heart of every person. The line between righteousness and unrighteousness divides every human heart. And that is why the gospel is the only solution for the nations. Christ here is describing a sword that he brings, and that sword is the word of God, which divides joint and marrow. The Apostle John sees the glorified Christ in the book of Revelation as he's protecting the churches. Now, the reason I say he's protecting the churches is Revelation 1.20 says that the mystery of the stars is that the stars are the churches. So literally, when Christ is holding the churches in Revelation 1.16, uh, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, he's holding these churches in his hand. And in the Gospels, Jesus describes those who the Father gives to him are in his hand, and none of the, and no one can pluck them out. So Christ is protecting the churches, and he does it by this way. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun, full in his strength. Jesus Christ is seen in John uh, John's vision in Revelation 1 as the protector of the churches and the one who speaks, and out of his mouth comes a sword. Again, a not a literal sword, but rather a sword which divides righteous from unrighteous, those who repent versus those who will not repent. So Christ, as, as his word goes forth, reigns now and is conquering his enemies. When, G, when John sees Revelation 1, this is not a future vision. Even though you could make the case that later in Revelation there is a future vision, John chapter 1 is seen before he's ever taken up in a vision. And this vision of Jesus Christ with a sword which is coming out of his mouth is before the statement, come up here and I will show you the things which must soon take place. So no matter what you believe about the book of Revelation, it doesn't matter, the word is proceeding from Christ's mouth before that moment. Paul takes up the exact same theme concerning the reigning Christ's victory before the eschaton. And the word eschaton is a simple word that just means the final event in history. 
The reason I use the term eschaton is because it is distinct from, especially in the original text of the New Testament, it's distinct from the day of the Lord. Now, that's an assertion that we do not have time to uphold. But if you want to explore that idea with me, I will do so uh, in person or at a later point. The, the essential idea here is that when Paul describes the end of time, the eschaton, in 1 Corinthians 15, he does not use the term the day of the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 24 through 26, then comes the end when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Christ is on the throne, continuing to destroy his enemies. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ in Revelation 1 says he has the keys of death and Hades and has defeated death and will completely defeat death. And that victory will be made manifest when he resurrects those who have hoped in him to everlasting glory, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And so Christ is reigning now and Christ is defeating his enemies now. The psalmist sees Christ upon a throne, here again, right back to that idea of his reign now. Unlike the wicked kings, though, Christ has a different scepter. The reason the psalmist describes the scepter is because this is unique for Christ. When you consider the political leaders of the earth, the kings who have lived throughout history, the atrocities and the genocides carried out by either despots or tyrants, nations going up against nation, uh, those kings have been made it's been made manifest that they are not righteous. This king is righteous. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now notice here in verse uh, 6, he is addressing this warrior bridegroom. He is calling this warrior bridegroom God. And we're going to see that in just a second. But I want to make it clear that Hebrews chapter 1 describes the Son of God and quotes Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. It describes Jesus Christ and quotes these exact same verses. The psalmist says that the throne is forever and ever, that means it, it's not going away, and the scepter of, of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. Righteousness being the scepter of Christ's kingdom means that he does not rule like other kings rule. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Essentially, what is being demonstrated is that Christ's throne will not pass away. And by pass away, I don't simply mean fade away. Although it won't fade away, it will remain resolute and glorious and beautiful, but it will not be removed. And I want to state plainly that there is absolutely no other person that could be referenced other than Jesus Christ. If you look in verse 7, uh, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In verse 6, this warrior bridegroom is identified as God himself. Your throne is forever. Verse 7, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The same subject, the same relative pronoun, uh, is pointing to a person that is he, that is this warrior bridegroom, who has God as his God. And corresponding to his manhood, it is right for us to understand that Jesus Christ walked with the Father as his God. And understanding that, we see that there is only one person who could be 
the fulfillment of this identification in these verses. Christ's throne is absolutely eternal. What does that mean? It means that Christ will never die, nor will he be deposed, nor will he decide to abdicate the throne. He's not like the other kings. He's got a righteous scepter. He's not going to suffer a coup. Coup d'etat is a French phrase that just means a stroke of state or a stroke of force. Coup uh, a, a, an idea is that Christ will not have a rebellion which succeeds against him. Neither the powers of Satan and his wicked host, that is the angels who joined in the rebellion, nor the kings and presidents of the earth, nor the armies that they command, none of them will rebel successfully against Jesus Christ. Essentially, the righteousness of Christ's kingdom is eternal, and it is being demonstrated over and over again throughout history. Christ is raising up kings and tearing down kings, and his scepter is behind all of them. He is greater in authority than any of the kings of the earth, and it's important that we as Christians begin to understand that, especially in this country. Moving on. Uh, not only is this reign eternal, but it's righteous. Imagine for a second if Christ's reign should be eternal and there be any amount of evil in it. What could we hope for? What could we do to overthrow it? It is gracious that God has chosen not only to have Christ have an eternal throne, but also the manifestly perfect nature of Jesus Christ. Being righteous means that there is security for not only our personal futures, but our eternal futures. He is not a despot who reigns with any sort of whimsical, judgmental nature, but rather he is constantly and always ruling righteously. This is the greatest king to ever live, and it's the greatest king that we could hope for. In Genesis 18, Abraham is, is encountered by God, and Abraham lets out this phrase concerning God sparing for at least a time the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says to God, shall not the judge of all the earth judge righteously. Now, I don't know about you, Abraham, although he is certainly a wonderful figure in our religion, he is a wonderful person, he was given grace by God, I don't think Abraham had the corner on understanding what the judge of the earth was going to do, and whether or not the judge of the earth was going to judge righteously. When Abraham asks Yahweh, shall not the judge of the earth do righteously, it's a rhetorical question. The point is that the judge of the earth is righteous, and that judge is God himself. He's a righteous judge who uses a righteous scepter. And that scepter is the, the very same thing as his sword. It extends pardon and mercy towards those who come before his throne, and it ultimately subjects those to judgment to the uttermost, those who persist in their rebellion. The scepter is used both to pardon and also to issue decrees and execute judgments. When we sing in the song, Be Exalted, Be Exalted in Your Judgments, we're asking that Christ would be demonstrated both in His mercy and in His justice, not one, not the other. And when we sing that song, we are not asking God to get revenge on His enemies or revenge on our enemies, but rather that He would un unfold His plan according to His will. Christ is reigning righteously, he has a righteous scepter, he is not a despot, and he is right to both extend pardon and to execute judgment. So, we see Christ at this point on the throne, and then it describes the joy which Christ has. That joy which he has received is received on our behalf, 
and he receives that joy, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit for us. Christ, after his ascension, is anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is the fullness of joy which exists at the Father's right hand. This joy, this gladness, Christ then takes and pours upon his bride. Here, the bride moves into the foreground of the poem in verse 8. Your robes, this is again still describing Christ, your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And if we fold in the ideas of Christ being anointed for his death and also the Song of Solomon, we see that Christ is ready for bridal communion. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. This is extolling the virtue, not only of Christ's kingdom, but also the reign that he has and the beauty, the culture, the life that is within his kingdom. Verse 9, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now, I want to make plain here when it says that there is a queen and also these princesses, it's not saying that there are multiple brides. That is, Christ loves this church and Christ loves that church. And No, we believe that there is one body. And here it's just a way for the, the psalmist to communicate the existence of the bride, which is constantly growing and constantly bearing fruit. And so the, the understanding is here there's a queen, there's also a princess, and there's daughters of kings. And so the bride is growing and growth is built into the language of this poem. Christ, having been anointed before his death and also on the cross, having received uh, the, the wine which he takes at the cross, is demonstrating he's going somewhere. He's going to take communion, not in just the sense of extending a meal or creating a meal, but being ready to meet the bride. This understanding is very, very important. Though today we do not see a bride who is beautiful, it is very important to understand this bride is dressed in gold. She is not dressed in rags. She's not dressed in tattered clothing. She's dressed in gold. She's beautiful, and she's anointed with the same joy that he has. Though we do not see this take place today, though the bride in many ways and many uh in many estimations, has deficiencies, we know that Christ is glorifying and beautifying his bride. And it's not a result of her work, but rather it's a result of Christ's work. Christ will have his bride and she will be made glorious. And so it's important for us as we discuss the church, both at a universal way, but also individual churches, that we remember who she belongs to. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Christ's church. And that bride he is zealous for. I don't know about you. If I ever identified some sort of deficiency in one of my friend's wives, I probably wouldn't say anything about it. And yet we are very quick to badmouth the bride. Very quick. I think we should tremble a little bit more than we do. The point being that the bride here is being made glorious. And it's not a result of her works. And it's proven here in this psalm. Christ calls out this people to forsake the kingdoms of the world, forming and making a bride himself. And here I believe there's a switch in the voice that is speaking in this psalm. For, for many parts of the psalm, this psalmist has been speaking, but I believe here Christ begins also to speak. This is the literal meaning of the word church. It means those who are called out. This is the idea that Christ is calling out to us both individually and as a people, and he's calling us to come and be separate 
from the nations. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The rightness of the submission of the church to Christ is so so beautiful and pure here that it's hard to, to war against the idea. Here, the bride is called to come out from her father's house, and this is a picture of those who respond to the gospel, leaving the world, leaving those paradigms, systems of thought, cultures, uh, parts of life, aspects of society, which are, quote, her father's house. If she leaves her father's house, she will be rewarded. Look at verses 10 again. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. The, the daughter here is commanded to hear, and he, she's commanded to hear those very words which come from the one, if we go back to verse 3, the one who, or sorry, verse uh, 2, the, the one who has grace upon his lips. He's speaking a gracious command, a gracious call, and she responds. And because of her response, she is bestowed upon the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who causes her to come before him in joy and gladness. It is not the job of the, of the bride to manifest fake joy or fake zeal for this king. And understanding the, the poem and where it's going, we see that it's also not our job to manifest or to manufacture joy. It's, it's not your job as a Christian to establish zeal for the Lord. It's actually conferred upon you by the Father giving the Holy Spirit via Christ. You have zeal for God. You have joy for God because he causes you to have joy as you come before him. It's very, very clear here in verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, also verse 13, sorry. Psalm 45, 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven of gold. This is describing the bride who is being prepared in a chamber and she's about to meet be presented to this king, this warrior bridegroom. Verse 14, in many colored robes, she is led to the king. This is re-invoking the idea of the favor that Joseph had, considering how excellent he was uh, among his brothers. He had a coat that was many-colored or multicolored coat. Um, the idea here is that she's arrayed in splendor. She's dressed in gold. She's given choice and pure clothing, which always speaks of the righteousness in which she walks. But it is not her righteousness, but rather Christ. Verse 14, with her virgin companions following behind her, again, the idea is presented that she is bringing forth more. The idea is not that Christ has multiple brides, but rather that this bride is bringing people with her who incidentally become part of that same bride. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along when, as they enter the palace of the king. When the bride comes before her king, she is bestowed, she is bestowed the gift of joy and gladness. It's not hers before she enters his presence, but when she does, it's certainly given. And here we see a great promise. The call is, hear, O daughter, call, heed, and then leave your fathers. And then here again, another promise is given in verse 16. The bride, as she forsakes the world, becomes the agent through which the king is bringing about more sons to the father. And this is the promise 
in verse 16 and 17, in place of your fathers, what was the call? To leave your fathers. And here's the promise and the reward. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. In where? In America? No. In Jerusalem? No. In all the earth. The, the church will be victorious in demonstrating righteous sons, that is, sons to the Father in all the earth. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Here I think there's a switch again in the author or the one who's speaking in this psalm. This psalmist began stating that he is like the, his tongue is like the pen of a ready writer. And then at the end here, he's saying what he's doing, what he's about. What this psalm has been about is the psalmist recording and showing a scene, a story, a narrative by which all of the earth will understand the glory of this bridegroom warrior. He will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. When she leaves her former family, the Bible over and over again has promises for her. She is given a promise, not only that she will have sons, but Christ himself makes this very same promise, that no one who has given up father, mother, brothers, sisters, possessions for the kingdom will not receive much more in this life, a hundredfold, and more in the next. The idea is not only that she will experience the joy and gladness, but also Christ will become precious for her. I want you to think in this imagery, what is the most precious thing that a, that a married person has? Consi of course, in the context of, of a marriage between a righteous warrior king and a beautiful, glorious bride who's in gold and many colored linens, uh, it's each other. You know, I, I, when I consider everything that I've experienced in my life, personally, as, as a human being, if I were to be asked to give up everything or my wife, it would be my wife, hands down, every time. I would never do anything concerning my house if it was on fire, concerning my car if it was being stolen. There would be nothing that I could trade for my wife. And the same goes, wives, for your husbands. And if not, you probably should talk to a pastor. Um, <laughs> but, but the point is that when you consider the beauty and the love between this warrior bride who fought for and called out a bride and gave her the very joy that he received, which was received for her behalf, there is nothing that could be done to separate them. And here the bride is glorified because she listens to and receives the call of the, the bridegroom king. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. And what I think is interesting about this, if you hear that verse today and you say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I've heard some things about the end of time and, you know, how, you know, there's differing views on whether God is going to redeem most of mankind or that the gospel will grow or shrink, or maybe you've got some notions of, the Antichrist, and you believe that he's a figure that's soon to be revealed, and possibly that all the nations would will fall into an apostasy. And you hear this verse, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, and you hear it today, and being ignorant of history, you look from this moment forward, you must consider what this psalm is. This psalm was probably written around the time of David, a thousand years before the coming of Christ. The reason you have this psalm is because Christ has already been causing it to come about that his name will be remembered in all generations. We're 3,000 years later and it's on a piece of paper in front of you. 
I don't know of anything that's 3,000 years old that is easily accessible like this. You know, there's doubts as to whether, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey were actually written by the same person. And we have a piece of paper that's 3,000 years old that tells us, and we have thousands of copies all over the earth. That doesn't happen by accident. It's because there is one, a warrior bride, who is maintaining his story and bringing it about. The reason that you can know who this, bride, this bridegroom king is, is because he has been fighting, because his word is a gracious word, and his, his sword is going forth dividing, and his scepter is moving to the right and to the left, pardoning and judging. Because Christ is actually the king, and it's not some sort of ethereal, wishy-washy, idealistic kingdom. It's a real kingdom, more real than the kingdoms we know about. This psalm shows us that the point of all marriage is actually not for us to enjoy our marriages detached or disjointed to God, but rather that by marriage, we would understand the true marriage. This is the real marriage. All other marriages are given to show forth that marriage. The reason that you as a human being have the image of God is to show forth God's image. This story is actually the true marriage, and all other marriages point to it, or they should. Either by their bad example or by their good example, they point to this marriage. This is why we were given marriage, and this is why God is demonstrating the, the righteousness that he has to the church as the bridegroom warrior. This is absolutely my favorite psalm in terms of understanding the theme poetically. Uh, there are many psalms like it. And you now have some tools, although they're still small and limited, um, they're trustworthy. The tools are asking God for help and also considering not only the commentators, the study Bibles, but what writers throughout all of the church have said concerning these Psalms. And the most important source you have is the writers of the New Testament, the apostles who faithfully spoke concerning Jesus Christ and used Psalms like this to talk about what Jesus was doing for his church. As God's redemptive plan unfolds and expands, Christ will receive the praise of the nations forever and ever. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask that as we come to this table, Lord, that you would do something beautiful in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, that you would give us the ability to see your plan unfolding throughout time and also understand that you are on the throne and that you are not swayed or surprised by the current events of our times. God, we ask that you would give us a mighty vision concerning the glory of this warrior who we uh, seek to know. We pray, God, that he would conquer those things which remain in our hearts, which are his enemies. God, we pray that he would, by his word, cut out those things that do not belong. But also, Lord, we are thankful, so thankful, that you've promised to give us the joy and the gladness that you received for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would be for us our true joy and our true pleasure. God, we ask that you would, not only in this church, but also in the cities or the churches in this city, that you would glorify your bride, that you would beautify her and make her into a shining example, that she would be demonstrated as a bride who is equal uh, who is able to be equally yoked. Lord, we thank you for the righteous
destiny on your church and us both as people. God, we pray that you would give us an ability and a hunger to search your scriptures for these types of, of stories that we, would, that we would surround our lives with these wonderful, authentic, and true stories concer concerning your redemptive plan. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.